Well, after all the time I've had to think about this and prepare, <laughs> uh, I finally uh, arrived, and I hope after all this preparation that you appreciate it, because I want you to know there's been a lot of time and thought gone in this. I even missed part of the Cardinals game just for you tonight. <laughs> no, I'm delighted to have that opportunity, and I appreciate so much uh, the time that I have with you. I want to take you over to 1 Corinthians. You might uh, could guess that I'm going to talk about love, and I'm going to spend most of the time in chapter 13. In this particular section of 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with problems that he has heard about in the church of Corinth. And in 12, 13, and 14, he is dealing with the problem of spiritual gifts. You see, the apostles could lay hands on people and they would receive certain spiritual gifts. Paul names nine of them over here in chapter 12. One of them was tongues and one was prophecy and knowledge and healing, and I'll not go into all of them, but they can be found for you there beginning at about verse 8 of chapter 12. It looks like they did not get to choose the one they wanted. They didn't send a card around or a sheet and sign your name and choose number four, number six, or three and eight. They just laid hands on them and they just got different gifts. Now, I know you'd be surprised, but there were some that didn't like the gift they got. Nobody would act like that here, but there are people that do that. And there were some that thought they were just a little bit better than everybody else because they got the high-priority gift, neighbor hot stuff. So there was a bad situation developing there in Corinth over spiritual gifts. And so in chapter 12, he starts off talking about these things, and he goes on to say that we're all one body, and uh, we're all one in Christ, and just like the body has many members, so we have uh, many gifts, and each member does its own thing and is not expected to do something one of the other members does. And then he comes over in the middle of all of this and says, Let me tell you a gift better than all nine of them put together. And that, as you know, is the gift of love. He begins the chapter by saying, Now I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love. I am nothing. And though I give all my possessions to feed the poor and surrender my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. He has pointed out in these first three verses that no matter what you have or what you do for the Lord, if you do not have love, you don't have anything and you haven't done anything that the Lord is pleased with. It is the value that gives value to everything we are and everything we do. Many of you probably know this. I will repeat it. It's been said the Greeks have a word for it. And they have at least uh, four different words for love. There's the word storge, which is the bond between brothers and a family as we stand together and fight together to defend our home. Storge. S-T-O-R-G-E. And then, of course, uh, there is the word eros, E-R-O-S, which generally deals with appetites. Not necessarily bad, but we generally use it and hear it in a bad tone today. We get the word erotic from it. 
and it does mean the uh, sexual appetites as well as others, and deals more along on that level. And uh, the Greeks were smart enough to know there was a difference between eros and real love. They had one word for this and another word later on. One of the more familiar words is the word phileo, or phileia would be the verb form, P-H-I-L-E-I-A. We get lots of words, Philadelphia, brotherly love, philatelist, what is he? He loves stamps, is that the one? I'll never get off of that. Philosopher loves wisdom. You know, these all these Phil words. Somebody in here named Philip, it means you love horses. Phileo hippos, and so if you don't like horses, you may not like your name. But anyway, this is the word phileo. It's a word that means friendship love. The people we phileo are the ones we're sitting with tonight, the ones we were talking to when church began, the ones we'll go to Mazio's or wherever tonight, you so wherever you go out, uh, Dairy Queen maybe, whatever it is. But these will be the people, and the ones you'll invite over and you like to be with. These are good friends. And that's the word phileo. The supreme word for love, as nearly all of you know, is the word agape. A-G-A-P-E. As one preacher was preaching, he said, we need more guppy love in this church. Well, it's not guppy, it's agape. And uh, the basic meaning of agape is to put the other person's good before your own. It's an unselfish love. It's the ultimate love. For you will deny yourself of what you want for the good of someone else. It's not seeking what you want. Girls, when uh, that boy is out with you and he says, if you love me, you'd let me, well, give him a Greek lesson. You say, you know, that's eros you're talking about. Desire. But if you really agapaoed me, you wouldn't even be asking because you would be seeking what was best for me before what you want. That is the meaning of the word agape. And uh, you may remember the little play on that in John chapter uh, 21, where uh, Jesus says, Peter, do you agapao me? And Peter said, I phileo you. Do you remember that? Do you agapao me? I phileo you. The third time, though, Jesus dropped down and used his word. Peter, do you phileo me? I phileo you. Do you love me supremely? I like you a lot. Do you love me supremely? I like you a lot. Do you like me a lot? I like you a lot. Peter never would use the other word. Maybe his uh, boasting and denial and embarrassment uh, led him to be a little bit more humble before he professed too much to the Lord. But at any rate, most of you remember that little play there on these words here in John chapter 21. Really, it's the only one of these uh, loves that can be commanded. You can command people to love you, but... They don't necessarily do it. That's not the way to get people to love you, as you know. That's a good way to get them not to. But at any rate, this word can be commanded. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God. That's agapo. Then the second greatest is love your neighbor as yourself. That's agapo again, or agapao. And so uh, that's what this word is. And that's the word that's used here in 1 Corinthians 13 throughout. Let me show you a gift better than all of these others. It's the gift of love. I believe I borrowed the outline from Henry Drummond. He said in the first three verses, we have the value of love. In verses three, uh, 4 through 7, we have the virtues of love. 
and verses 8 to the end, the victory of love. The value of love, as you will see in the first three verses, is that there's not anything worth anything unless love is the motive. Not any gift or any sacrifice that you could make or any, anything else. That is the value of love. Let's look at these verses. And he begins, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Well, of course, as I said a moment ago, when they got these nine miraculous gifts, some didn't like the one they got. Somebody thought he was just a little bit better than the others because of the one they got. And you probably would be surprised to know the gift of choice was tongues. Now, that is really big, isn't that right? This is the ability to speak in a language that you've never studied before. Some of you struggling with some languages, you can pay good for that gift, wouldn't you? But just lay hands on them and they could speak Swahili, Chinese, or whatever. It's not the ability to make a racket that nobody understands. It is a tongue. It is a language. It is the gift of tongues. Some of those that got the gift of prophecy, they thought they'd been let out a little bit. That's a dumb old gift. And you could just see how the pride could develop in the church. Say, hey, what do you have? Well, oh, we have the gift of tongues. All of us that speak in tongues are going over to my house after church tonight. Now, now, you know, you have that gift of prophecy. You feel out of place. I'm sorry you can't come. But, but those of us are ever going to go out. And we've been meeting regularly, you know, all of us that have the gift of tongues. And we just really, really enjoy that. Isn't that fun? Henry? Oh, I love that. I love that. That makes everybody else feel wonderful, doesn't it? And so Paul is saying, if I had the gift of tongues to the nth degree... I don't have agape love. There's your word, agape. I am as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. In other words, it's just a hollow, meaningless sound. Absolutely nothing. And then secondly, he talks about some of the other gifts. Verse 2. And if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... There you have the uh, gift of wisdom and the gift of knowledge and the gift of prophecy, at least three there. And then I have all faith. That's another one of those nine miraculous gifts mentioned in chapter 12. So that I could remove mountains. There seemed to be a faith that could move mountains, and some could have done that, maybe literally. But he says, if I don't have love, I am nothing. Or as some young people would say, I am, or used to say, zip. In fact, someone told me that all nine of these gifts are like nine zeros that you put up here. Love is the one in front of those nine zeros. How many of you have nine zeros of dollars? You ever take three or four? That's probably what you got, isn't that right? How many of you have a one with nine zeros after it? If you do, would you see me after church? I need you. <laughs> the church needs you. <laughs> all of a sudden, you go from nothing to a billion, I believe. Isn't that right? Love is that which gives value to any and all of these gifts. That's what he is saying right here. And without it, I am zip. And then he goes on to verse 3 for a third illustration. Though I give all my possessions to feed the poor and surrender my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Well, you remember there was a man, the rich young ruler, told him to sell all he had and give to the poor and some of us have read that and glad he just told us to be baptized and not to do that. 
But when you think if someone did that, wow, he is really something, and there have been those that have done that. Give your body to be burned. That would be a martyr at the stake. Well, you think a person could miss Wednesday nights and do that and still go to heaven, don't you think? I mean, imagine that. But if I made such sacrifices as that and did not do it for the motive of love, all of these things add up to zero. And he says, it profits me nothing. What is the value of love? The first three verses. It is that which gives meaning and value to everything we have, to everything we give, and to everything we do. That is how important a godly love is. I'm going to spend most of the rest of the time I have going through the virtues of love, and if I don't get to the victory of love, I may be on some time and not even know it, and I may come back and do that one for you. I don't know. But at any rate, verse 4, we begin with the virtues of love. Love is patient. Now, my Bible has patient. I learned this in the King James. Love suffers long and is kind. I imagine that's the way that you know it. Somebody said, if you want to have an experience, uh, put your name there in the place of love. Like I heard Brother Bales say that. You say, uh, John is faithful, John is patient, Will Ed is kind. Uh, on down the line we go here. And Brother Bales got down to that last verse and said, Bales never fails. And he said, that doesn't sound too good. But anyway, put your name there and see if this describes you. This love all throughout this chapter is the agape love. Now, my Bible says patient. There are different words for patient. Two main words in the Bible. One is steadfast. That's uh, one you don't care to hear that word. And the other one is long-suffering. This is the word for long-suffering. Love suffers long, and that's why the King James says that. And we have long-suffering as the word for patience here. And that's what it is. Those that we are that we love, we tend to be more patient with. I read this in some Sunday school literature that this fellow said there are two boys on our block, equally mischievous. One of them I wish would move. The other one is ours. <laughs> sort of makes a difference when it's yours, but, but, but <laughs> at any rate, uh, we tend to be patient with those that we uh, love. And you've probably heard this sometimes, as you well know. How in the world could that woman stand that man? I couldn't put up with him ten minutes. And she's been with him all these years. Or maybe the other way around, stand that woman. Well, you probably couldn't. But there's a difference. See, he loves her, or she loves him. And that makes all the difference in the world. And she likes the little things he does and thinks they're cute when we don't. Love suffers long and is kind. Love is seen in uh, working with people and giving them other chances and not being too quick to judge them, to be harsh and judgmental toward them, and to let them be people, realize we're all just trying to make it, and some of us are not doing a very good job, and sometimes none of us do a very good job. But we have to learn to be patient with each other. And that's something I think that all of us could learn the way to do that is to apply the principle of agape love. So we have the virtue of patience. Secondly, we have the virtue of kindness. A little girl one time was heard in a prayer at night say, God, please make all the bad people good and make all the good people nice. 
sad to say all the good people are not nice. This is the word for being nice. This is the word to be kind. Kind in your attitude toward others. Kind in the way you speak to others. Kind in the way you talk about others. Kind in the way you treat others. Respectful. Considerate. Whether they deserve it or not. That's what this is. There's an interesting little play in Greek. The Greek word for kind is Christos. And there's just one letter different between that and Christos, which is Christ. And there are some early writings that it looked like those two words have gotten mixed up. The Christ people and the kind people. <laughs> Would to God they got mixed up again. And Christ people were known for being kind. I'm afraid that's not how the world regards us. Love suffers long and is kind. You know, it's important for us to be kind, for people to be kind to our children. We certainly don't appreciate it when they're not. And I think one of the greatest things we could do to please God would be to be kind to His children. Had you ever thought of that? This is God's child. And I think he would take it uh, offense at the fact that I would not treat him with the love and kindness that I should, whether he deserves it or not. Be kind. I shall pass through this world but once. Any good I can do or kindness I can show, let me do it not. Let me not defer nor neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. Many of you have heard that famous quote. Love suffers long and is kind. The third one is the virtue of generosity. Love envieth not. It is hard for us not to be in competition. That was a big thing here because they didn't like the gift they got and others thought they were a little better than the others. They had won out. They'd gotten the good gift, you see, and there was the friction. Love envieth not. You know, it's funny, we are competitive with people of like work. Had you ever noticed that? You know, somebody tells me that Chuck's a better singer than I am. Well, I don't care. Of course he is. Uh, that's an all right. Now, you haven't heard me sing. You don't really know how good I am, but I'm not as good as Chuck, you know. Or Joe knows more history than you do. Well, probably does. I hope he did. He taught here for years. Jimmy Allen's a better preacher than you are. Oh, no, he's not. Yeah, then I'll get my dangle up. Yes, sir. Now you're stepping in my territory, you see. Isn't that the way we look at it? And some of you couldn't care less if someone told you that you, somebody was a better preacher than you were because you don't do that, or a better Bible teacher, that these are the things that I try to do, you see? And that's where we run into the friction. Preachers against preachers, teachers against teachers, administrators against administrators. And on down the line we go, secretaries against secretaries. I think you've got the point. But there's no competition here. As Paul says that in the body of Christ, I love this one, in back here in verse 26 of chapter 12, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? that we care for each other, that we're not trying to outdo each other. 
And you know, the interesting thing is, you may not have thought of it in just this way, but God does not grade on the curve. The fact that someone has excelled really doesn't diminish us in any way. God grades us, each one of us, according to what we're able to do. And if we have done what we're able to do and served in the best way we can, that's all we've got to do. God never thought about comparing us to someone else. As Paul said on one occasion, those who compare themselves by themselves are not wise. And so we're not in competition with each other here. We're just trying to help each other go to heaven. Paul uses this to talk about the body. All the members of the body are together, each one doing different things. Did you ever drive a nail and hit the wrong nail like the one on your thumb? What did your right hand say to the left hand? That's good enough for you. You stay out of the way next time. I'll hit you again. No, you dropped that hammer down and ran over there and rubbed the whole body was upset. Your mouth sucked on it. If you weren't careful, your mouth, right mouth would say something about it. It shouldn't. Uh, you know, the whole body is concerned. A member is hurt. We're all in this together. And one member is honored. It brings honor to everybody. All the members of the body are honored when a member is honored. And you girls have a diamond slipped on this finger right here one day. What did you say to that boy? I have nine more. And they're going to get jealous. And then don't forget the toes, you know. This could get expensive, couldn't it? Yeah, the other parts of the body don't get jealous. They're happy because what honors one part of the body honors the whole body. Now, when someone in the body of Christ is honored, then I'm honored. Because I'm a part of that body, and it brings honor to me and the body to which I belong. We need to remember that. And in heaven, or at the judgment, God won't even be comparing us with each other. He knows what He has given us to do, and He will be judging us according to how well we did what we were to do. The fourth virtue, we come down to the next one, is the virtue of humility. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up, the King James, I believe, says. Mine says, does not brag and is not arrogant. Vaunting yourself is probably dealing with the outside, bragging and boasting and making a general nuisance of yourself. Arrogance is the inner attitude, you know, the inner feeling of superiority because you have something that the others don't have or, or some kind of competitive thing like that. And so that's what we have here in envying. If one member suffer, we all suffer. All the body members envy not. And then we come down to number four, love boneth not itself. And that, of course, is talking about the virtue of humility. We should not try to make other people feel inferior. And uh, sometimes the things we say make others feel inadequate around us. I really think that most conceit that we know in people, or sometimes when we exemplify deceit, comes from feelings of in, uh, conceit, that comes from feelings of insecurity. Yeah, when someone brags about what all he's done, the first thing we wonder is, well, where are you inadequate? Why do you have to go into all of this, you say? Why do you feel so inadequate? Well, we come to the virtue of courtesy. Let's look at the next one here. Love vaunteth not itself. Love does not act unbecomingly. Paul told Titus in Titus 3, 2, that 
you should show perfect courtesy to all men. I've been told that love is the rule behind all etiquette. If you forget, you know, which uh, knife to eat your peas with, we'll just follow the golden rule. The golden rule will get you through most social situations. It's been considerate of other people. Love is courteous. Some of you even have that word there, I believe. Is that not true? Love is courteous. And then the next one is the virtue of unselfishness. Seeketh not her own. Boy, there's a lot saved to that, isn't it? You know, in Corinth, there was a problem with uh, going to law with each other in chapter 6. And uh, they were going through litigation before even unbelievers. <laughs> and Paul, in that statement, said, Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Is it worth it? You know, sometimes fighting for your rights is really not worth it. There's so many people nowadays, you know, well, I'm going to get mine. This is the thing to do. I'll stand up and nobody's going to push me around and nobody's going to take advantage of me. I'm going to do it. I will seek my own and I will defend my own. That's what I will do. There's a story of a man that, I don't know if it's true or not, I read it in the church building, so it probably is. Uh, a man moved into a new neighborhood, and he was met by his uh, next-door neighbor right soon after that and said, you and I are not going to get along. Well, that's a good way to be welcomed. And he said, why? What's wrong? He said, well, I'll tell you exactly what's wrong. Your fence is six inches over on my property line. And he said, oh, we're not going to fight over that to the man before you and I did, and we will do. He said, no, we're not. I'll move the fence. The other guy said, forget it. You know, he didn't mind the fence being there as long as it wasn't a sign of a stubborn will. Isn't that right? I mean, what, six inches? Some of you probably where you live would give a foot on either side for a happy neighbor. Is that right? <laughs> but at any rate... Uh, so many times, if we're just willing to give in a little bit, well, that's okay, you know. I think it's right for people not only to be treated fairly by us, but to feel that we have been treated fairly. They have been treated fairly. You hear me there? Now, I don't want to go be misunderstood in this, but sometimes we teachers may be too much sticklers on this point on the test. Just thought I'd mention that. You may win the battle, but you may lose the war. And uh, is it really worth it sometimes if someone sincerely feels that something is that way? Uh, maybe we shouldn't seek just for our rights. Well, we come down to the next one. Not easily provoked. Good temper. I've been told you can tell the size of a man by the size of what upsets him. Little people get upset over everything. But it takes something big to upset a big man or a woman. The slightest little breeze will move the leaves around on the tree and the little twigs, but it takes a big wind to move the trunks over here, some of these huge oaks that we see around here. It takes a big wind. And there you could, if you wanted to, find a hundred reasons for getting all upset about something tomorrow. 
Someone spoke to you. Somebody didn't speak to you. Uh, you know, on and on it goes, all the time. Somebody said something smart. Somebody did this, that, and the other. Someone didn't drive right and cut out in front of you, you know, and on and on it goes. And if you wanted to, you could just be a nervous wreck and totally unfit to be around the moon. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Unselfishness, good temper, not easily provoked. He that rules his spirit is greater than he that takes a city. The soft answer turns away wrath. The grievous words stir up anger. Many of you probably heard this little saying, little pot soon hot. <laughs> Same idea of a little pot boil quickly. But the big pots have a much, much lower, well, same boiling bond. It just takes longer to get there. And you would be surprised how much control you have over your life if you would make up your mind consciously that you're not, you're going to be above these things upsetting you today. They will not upset me. It's not worth it, and they will not upset me. Now, there are times when we ought to get upset. Even Jesus got upset a time or two, didn't he? Looks to me like he had his dander up when he was cleansing the temple. What do you think? Yes. And there are times we should get upset. But all the little personal slights that we have and all of these little things that go by every day, the little barbs, they're really not worth running your day over. They're really not. Be above that. Move on a higher plane than that. Not easily provoked. Then we come to think of no evil, goodwill, and I think this means that we expect the best of others and give them the benefit of the doubt. We don't impugn their motives, and even sometimes when they seem to have the wrong motive or have done the wrong thing, uh, we look for some ways to excuse them in our minds. And maybe they had a bad day, you know, you don't know what, maybe they don't feel well. And we shouldn't be too harsh. Uh, it's not our job uh, to be harsh with other people or try to straighten them all out. We would want really the same treatment from other people to give us a little slight and not impugn our motives and think evil of us sometimes when maybe they should or maybe they shouldn't. And then the last of these I've called the virtue of uh, sincerity. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Romans 1 talks about those that not only sinned, but also take delight in those that did sin. And so we are just not the kind of people that want to be around that kind of talk, to be engaged in that kind of activity, and we do not enjoy that kind of association. We have to keep ourselves in other matters rejoiced in the truth. And then he closes it out so beautifully, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let me tell you about this word bears. Uh, some of you do not have bears all things in verse 7. You may have a more modern version that says something like always protect. This particular word for bear can mean to support or hold up. But it also can mean to cover or protect. 
And so the use of the word in that sense is why some people have always protests there. And that is a satisfactory translation of this Greek word. And if so, I like that because we protect other people. We don't allow bad to be said about them in our presence when they're away. We protect them. You know, there are some people that you do not feel comfortable with and you never feel safe with. And there are other people that you do feel safe with. And every now and then it comes back to you that that person has defended you in your absence. And he protected you. That's the kind of people we ought to be. We ought to protect one another. We ought to cover for one another when they need them and not try to assassinate one another. I like the meaning of that word and I believe, I don't know, the NIV I think says always, is that the one that says always protect? I think it is. Bears all things or protects all things, believes all things, that means trust one another, hopeth all things, expects the best and looks for the best and doesn't give up on you, endures all things, It'll hang in there, even in the hard times, and even through the conflicts we may have, we won't give up. These are the virtues of love. The third V, which I'll mention only briefly, is the victory of love. The victory of love begins in verse 8, love never fails. And then he talks about some of the gifts that they had. Prophecy will be done away, tongues will cease, knowledge will be done away. These are three of those nine miraculous gifts. We know in part and only prophesy in part. Uh, he says this is not the real thing love is. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Nobody knows for sure what the perfect is. I don't plan to go into that tonight. That would I could go into that, but I don't want to. Take too long. You wouldn't want me to do that. But some say that it is the completed New Testament. Then these gifts will be taken away. Uh, some say it is the second coming of Christ. And this is the argument that these gifts will stay here to then. Uh, I remember Brother McKinney saying he thinks that the perfect thing here is love. And love will make these other gifts unnecessary. And so he goes on to say when uh, he was a child, he used to speak and think and reason like a child. But when he became a man, he put away childish things. So we need to move into a different category. But now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, said the writer of Hebrews. Paul says that love is greater than faith. And I really doubt if any of us are going to be able to please God until we love not only God, but His children, our brothers and our sisters, and we show it in every way, in every day of our lives, as long as we can. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. Can you finish that? If you have love for one another. Perhaps someone would like to respond tonight for prayer, to become a Christian.
for any special need that you have. We have the song to encourage you to do so. And as we stand to sing, we invite you to come. <laughs>